Well, good morning, church. Great to be with you this morning. If you haven't met me yet, my name is Ryan. I am one of the pastors here. So encouraging to refocus our attention through music on Jesus um, and remind ourselves that he is the one that truly matters. And so um, thankful for that and thankful for Pastor Brian last week, uh, reminding us in this series, My Part Matters, that my part only matters because Jesus' part matters exceedingly and abundantly more than our part matters, laying the foundation for our obedience mattering to this whole thing. So we've been in a series um, called My Part Matters, where we're really just looking at some intentional actions and attitudes that we as individual believers are going to have to like cling to if this thing's going to work. And by this thing, I mean a, a healthy church merger, right? Bringing two congregations together to become one. It's important that each one of us takes seriously the commands of Jesus, the commands of the New Testament when it comes to church unity. And if we just talk about it and don't do it, then it won't get done. Or if some of us do it and others of us don't do it, it still won't get done. We have to do this thing together. So that's kind of the, the theme for our series. And not only does your part matter, um, but so does my part, right? And Pastor Matt's part and our leadership's part. The leadership kind of has a different part in this story. And, and the part that we really need to be doing at the moment is charting the course, showing you all the direction that we are headed as a church. And I think just to be completely transparent and vulnerable, that's one of the areas that maybe I haven't done as well as I could have in this uh, in this immediate process and waiting for Matt to get back. And so that's really the next kind of thing that he and I are going to be focusing on. But just for some clarity, when charting the course, where we are as a church and where we're headed, um, man, so far, the, the, the process of this merge has gone so much more seamlessly and beautifully than any of us could have ever imagined. We, we believed it, thought that it was going to be good, but just know that difficulty comes. And so um, we've been calling it, a lot of us behind the scenes have been calling it the honeymoon phase, right? Like things are good. Um, but as you learn to live together, uh, Mary, you, those of you that are married know that as you learn to live together, things come up that you weren't fully prepared for or didn't see coming. And so this new stage in our church merger, we've been kind of using this language, learning to live together. Um, and I remember when Marissa and I got married, I was living in an apartment for a couple of months in my hometown. I had a full-time job. I had a life. I had a pattern. I had things that I did. And, and one of the worst things that I did in the first year of marriage was I kind of just like kept doing life. And she moved into my apartment and participated in my schedule, and it was like, I didn't even realize what I was doing, but what I was doing is I was inviting us to start this new life together, but in reality, I was asking her to just do my stuff. Um, and I, I think that if we're not careful, that could be what both congregations feel. Like, I've, I've heard the language, like, well, we've always done things this way, or we've always had this ministry, or we've done this thing this way, or, well, well we did things this way, and, and I think... As we learn to live together, part of it is going to be us, like, pausing for long enough to figure out what things need to continue and what things we can recreate together. We can reimagine as a congregation what God is calling us to in our community as a new congregation, not as both previous congregations, how things were previously, but what is the new thing that God is calling us to do? And I believe that part of that trajectory is 
us as a leadership charting that course. And I just want to tell you that I, I believe in this leadership principle about leading as fast as is wise. Um, I believe that the kingdom of God is important and we should be about doing things. We should be about making a difference in our community. Um, but I also want to make sure that we get out of the gate at the right pace. Um, I'm a, I, I recently started long distance running a couple years ago, and I have a pace. <laughs> it's not a very fast pace, but it's a pace. And I know how fast that I should start depending on how long that I'm going to go. And I've got a little earbuds that talk to me. You guys, anybody runners know what's going on here? So what happens is sometimes I think I'm charting a really good pace. Like, man, I'm, I'm feeling good. Life's good. And depending on the weather, like that feels different. Siri comes into my ear and she's like, mile one. And she gives me the pace. And there's like certain numbers that I'm like, oh, no, <laughs> this is going to be a problem. I'm running too fast, right? Like it feels good right now, but it is going to catch up to me very, very quickly. And so what I don't want for us as a church is I don't want us to just get out of the gate at this blazing fast pace where things feel great. Like we're doing awesome things for the kingdom, but we're not really taking care of what we need to take care of. We're not really laying the foundation. And so my, my fear is that if we get out of the gate too fast, we might have some initial success but that might get in the way of our long-term success. And my hope and my prayer, and I know many of our hopes and prayers, is that this church would be a kingdom outpost in this community for a long time to come. And so if we're going to do that, we need to move as fast as is wise. Um, and for many of you, as fast as is wise is going to feel way too slow. And for many of you, as fast as is wise is going to feel way too fast. And so my hope and my prayer is that we would kind of figure that pace out together as a leadership, chart that course. One thing that I want to do over the next couple of weeks when Matt gets back is just give us a 12-month calendar of when we're going to start to really focus on certain things like small groups and outreach and discipleship strategies and, and all of the things that I know you guys are eager to get started on. Um, just be patient with us as we seek to chart a course that is as fast as is wise. Is that fair? All right, that's my five-minute State of the Church address, um, pre-sermon. Please continue to be praying for us as a church and our leadership as we start to chart this course. Um, now, as we turn our eyes to our sermon series this morning, the My Part Matters, we really have been talking about, it's been going from big picture to practical, right? We've talked about large attitudes, and then we've gotten down to really specific actions. And today is my last message in this series, and it's going to be the last really practical message, and then we're going to have one more week. Um, Corey is going to refocus our eyes on the big picture, because what happens oftentimes is when we move from big picture to practical, we lose sight of the big picture, and so Corey's going to refocus our eyes on abiding in Jesus. We can talk about John 15, because the reality is if we get so focused on specific behaviors, we become religious Pharisees and not Jesus followers. So the, the practical behaviors are really important, but they're only important if they're done through a true abiding relationship with Jesus. I'm preaching Corey's message next week, so I'm going to stop. But we're, we're, we're kind of finishing this really practical part of the series and refocusing our attention on the big picture. And if I'm honest, as I was trying to think of what's, this, what's the last behavior that I'm going to focus on, what's the last practical behavioral advice am I going to give for us to have unity in the church, I couldn't, I couldn't pick one. There's like, there's so many. Like half of the New Testament is these commands and these practical advices for 
unity. Um, and so I, I did pick one. It took me a while. But um, I also want to, just, just for context sake, do something that is not normal for me, but I think will be really beneficial. So, before we get into the one last specific practical behavior that matters, uh, I'm going to read a really large section of Scripture. Is that okay? You guys like to read the Bible together out loud? So, um, what happens here is is the behavior that we're going to talk about falls in the middle of Romans chapter 12. And Romans chapter 12 is Paul's kind of, his transition to behavior. Like he goes from theology to behavior. It's actually his version of Ephesians chapter 4, which is the text that we've been spending a lot of time in the past couple of weeks. It's just a little bit more bloated because he hasn't been in person with the Romans, so he's got to do way more work. Um, So, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read Romans chapter 11, verse 33, through the end of Romans chapter 12. And what I'd encourage us to do as a church is this week, every day this week, I'd encourage you, if if you're going to spend time in the uh, spend time with the Lord, this to to stop and for three minutes just read this passage and think about these behaviors, think about these attitudes and these actions that Paul is saying will lead to a healthy and unified church, and ask the Holy Spirit to like make the ones that you need to work on like pop out so, so that you understand like, oh, these are areas in my life that I need to submit to the Holy Spirit. And also like ask the Lord to show you the ones that you're good at so that you can be encouraged like, oh, well, I might be bad at this one, but I'm, I'm, I'm good at this one. So if you're able and healthy and you want to, you can stand with me as we read this passage of scripture. If you're not, there's no judgment. Um, this is a no, this is a judgment free zone. Let's just think about the attitudes and actions of a healthy and unified church. Paul, at the end of his beautiful exhortation on the gospel of Jesus, says this, Oh, how great are God's riches and wisdom and knowledge. How impossible is it for us to understand his decisions and his ways. For who can know the Lord's thoughts? Who knows enough to give him advice? And who has given him so much that he needs to be repaid? For everything comes from him and exists by his power and is intended for his glory. Everything exists by his power and is intended for his glory. All glory to him forever. Amen. And so, because that's true, because everything exists for God's glory, let us give our bodies to God because of all he has done for us. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind that he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship Him. Don't copy the behaviors and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way that you think. Then you will learn to know what God's will for you is, these specific behaviors and actions that are good and pleasing and perfect. Because of the privilege and authority God has given me, I give each of you this warning. Don't think of yourselves better than you really are. Mm. Ouch. Be honest in your evaluation of yourselves, measuring yourselves by the faith that God has given you. Just as our bodies have many parts, and each part has a special function, so it is with Christ's body. We are many parts of one body, and we all belong to each other. In His grace, God has given us different gifts for certain things. So if God has given you the ability to prophesy, speak out with as much faith as God has given you. If your gift is serving serve each other well. If your gift is teaching, teach well. If your gift is to encourage, be encouraging. If it's giving, give generously. 
If God has given you the ability to lead, take that responsibility seriously. And if you have a gift for showing kindness to others, do it gladly. Don't just pretend to love others. Really love them. Hate what is wrong and hold tightly to what is good. Love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring one another. Never be lazy, but work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically. Rejoice in our confident hope. Be patient in trouble. Keep on praying. When God's people are in need, be ready to help them. Always be eager to practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. Be happy with those who are happy and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with each other. Don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people and don't think you know it all. Ouch. Never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you are honorable. I think this is a really important verse here for our entire process. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scripture says, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. Instead, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals of shame on their heads. Don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that you give us guidance and direction for how to live in harmony with one another, how to live in peace with one another, how to form a community that then makes an impact in the larger community, to form a community that's focused on submitting their lives to the Lord and leadership of Jesus and being transformed into a new community that's built on the principles that this creation was designed to be built around. And may, as we form that community, may we go out into the, the greater community and, and demonstrate what it looks like to live in accordance with creation's design. May people find hope and healing and peace in the midst of that. For your glory and for our good. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. It's a lot of really, really practical teaching in Romans chapter 12 and the rest of the book of Romans. But I really want to focus on two verses here in the middle. And before we get there, have any of you ever been a part of an organization that was kind of restating their mission, vision, and value statement? Or maybe it was a new organization being created. Any of you been a part of this process? I've been a part of this process a lot, and I think it's because churches are always reimagining their mission, vision, and value statement. And I thought about why that is. I think it's because Christians are stubborn, and pastors always feel like they have to give new dialogue, new creative ways to convince people to do the thing that God's always called us to do. Now, even if you look at Paul's epistles, a lot of Paul's general epistles, they all say the same thing in a different way. Like he's just trying to get the believers to do the thing that God's calling them to do. And so when you think about mission, vision, and value statements, the mission is what do we want to see happen, right? Like what's the overarching big picture goal? And then the vision is how do we envision that happening in this specific context? And then the values are kind of working that out practically. If we want the vision to happen, what are the behaviors? What are the things that have to happen? 
um, for our mission and our vision to be accomplished. And I think this is a, a helpful framework for our message this morning because I think Paul is going to do that in these two verses. He's going to give us like a big picture thought. This is what I want to happen in the church, and this is how I want it to happen. This is what I want to see it look like. And then ultimately, he's going to give one specific behavior that is kind of the, the linchpin or the, the catalyst for that mission, vision, and value. Sound, sound like a plan? All right. Canvas people know that I often ask that question, and I don't care what the answer is because I already wrote the message. So that's what we're going to do. Um, so Paul's mission for a unified church, uh, he transitions, like I said, from theology to practice, and then he gives a treatise on using your gifts. Kent talked about that a few weeks ago in Ephesians chapter 4, understanding the gift that you've been giving, your calling, and living in, in light of that. And then he transitions to really practical behaviors. In verse 9, he says, don't just pretend to love others, really love them. Hate what is wrong and hold tightly to what is good. I think this is Paul's mission statement for the church at Rome. This is what he wants to be happening in their midst. He wants them to really love each other. You guys know, those of you that have been in church a long time, you know this is agape. This is unconditional love. He wants you to love each other the way that God has loved you. He wants you to hate sin, and he wants you to pursue righteous living. I don't think any of us would disagree with that. Like, that is a, a pretty good mission statement for the church. Love each other, hate sin, pursue righteousness. Like, pretty much we could say amen and go home, right? That's Paul's mission statement. He says, we, we should love each other because God has loved us. First John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. And, and then we define love. Our definition for that love is rooted in Jesus. First John 3, 16. This is how we know what love looks like. That he gave his life for us. So we should also give our lives for one another. So this is Paul's big picture mission statement. Understand how much God loves you. Extend that love to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Be obedient to what God commands you. Anybody disagree with that? No. It's pretty, pretty solid advice. But it's somewhat abstract, right? It's so big picture that that's one of those things that as Christians we can just agree with and then leave. But what does it look like lived out? And so Paul transitions from his mission for the church to love each other, to take delight in doing good and hating evil. And then he gives a vision statement. What, is this, what does he really want this to look like? And this is where it gets interesting. In Romans chapter 10, he says, Love one another with genuine affection. Love one another with genuine affection. So he moves from this big picture command. Essentially, he's saying you should love each other because God says so. Like, you're commanded to love one another unconditionally. But that's, that's a big abstract idea. But what I really want you to do is actually like each other. I want you to become family with one another. He moves from agape to phileo, right? Like from, from commanded love, from the thing that you're supposed to do because God told you to do it, to actually liking each other. Familial love. So Paul wants us, ultimately, as a church, he wants the church at Rome to move from loving each other because you have to, to, to genuinely having familial affection for one another. Loving people that you don't like can be difficult and draining. 
So if, if that was all Paul gave us, like love each other because God loved you, hate sin, do what's right, and he moved on, we could all agree with that, but that gets really exhausting when you're constantly coming into a room full of people that you don't really like, but you have to love because God told you to. Sounds like church sometimes, right? And so Paul is saying, no, like, that's, this, is, this is yes, this is big picture, this is what we need you to do, but I want it to look different. I want you to genuinely like each other. And this is difficult. This takes time and intention and effort. It's my experience that there is no microwave for genuine affection. Like, it doesn't happen overnight. And so there's this placeholder, Paul's saying, like, just love each other because God said so. Like, do that for now. But I want you to move from that to something deeper, something better. I want you to become family. The body of Christ, church is supposed to be family, and that takes time and energy and effort and prayer. The reality is a lot of us in this room, we love each other because God told us to. My heart for our church is that we would learn to live together in a way that moves from commanded love to genuine affection. So what is that? How do we do that? How do we learn to love each other with genuine affection? How do we move from commanded love to genuine affection? See, Paul gives a behavior, an action, that I, I wouldn't even have in the top ten of my list if I were to make a list of, of how a church was supposed to move from commanded love to genuine affection. If we, I, I think if we all sat down and made a list, some of our lists would be similar, and I doubt that any of you would include what Paul has first on his list. If he wants the church to move from, from commanded love to genuine affection, the first behavior that he gives, he says, take delight in honoring one another. Honor? That's kind of weird, right? Like, that's the first thing on the list if we're going to move from commanded love to genuine affection. How do we, what does that look like? And the rest of the book of Romans is going to be a ton of different behaviors of how to move from commanded love to genuine affection. But the first one, the first one that he gives is honor. That doesn't necessarily hit our ears normal in our Western culture, right? Like, that's not a word that we use very often. When's the last time you've heard somebody use the word honor in context? Maybe, like, your kid's on the honor roll, possibly, but other than that, like, it's not a word that we use. It, it can be vague and cliche, so what does it mean? If this is Paul's catalyst for moving from commanded love to genuine affection, we need to understand what it means. The word honor, it has this idea and the value of a product or the rank of an officer. The value of a product or the rank of an officer. So, so when you honor something, you're saying this is how much you're worth. This is how much this product is worth. Or this is how much respect this person is worth. Those of you that were in the military know that as people go up in rank, you're just commanded to honor them more, right? To value them more. To go out of your way to show respect to them. Essentially, honoring one another is choosing to assign a high value to each other. Now, now that we kind of unpack that idea, we can see how this might be a catalyst for moving us from commanded love to genuine affection. If there's a room full of people who are going out of their way to choose to value the person next to them more than themselves, to choose to say, you know what, I have 
a limited time, energy, and resources, but I am going to invest those time, energy, and resources into you and into you and into you because you matter more than me. If we literally sacrifice and, and choose to see each other as more valuable than ourselves, imagine a room full of people all fighting to serve each other more, all fighting to sacrifice and sacrificially love each other more. Imagine what happens as all of us do that together. Genuine affection begins to be formed because we're having conversations, we're sacrificing our time and our energy and our resources, we're having each other into our homes, and we're doing life together. So Paul says, if you're going to move from commanded love to genuine affection, you've got to start to see each other as valuable. You've got to start to see each other as more valuable than we tend to see each other. How many yard sailors do I have in the room? Any people that are up for yard sailing? I grew up in a home with yard sailors. Uh, my mom is a big yard sailor. She's watching online. So, Mom, thanks for the illustration. Um, there's a couple different types of yard sailors. Some yard sailors just want to get rid of stuff. So they just throw all their stuff out on the lawn, and they're like, just take it. 25 cents, stickers on everything, doesn't matter. And then, have you ever stopped at a yard sale where, like, the price tags on the junk is like ridiculous. These are the type of yard sailors that frustrate me, where all of their junk is worth like exceedingly abundantly more than it was when it was new. They don't. There's no chance they actually want to get rid of it. And what I, what I, my theory behind this is, my theory is that the spouse of the person forced them to put their stuff out there, but they don't want to get rid of it. So they're like twenty five dollars for this thing, right? But oftentimes the value is in the eyes of the person that's putting the thing out. They, they value this thing more than you might value it because they have context and understanding and, and a background behind it. But this is the type of God that we have. The type of God that sees a high value in you when you don't see it in yourself. Sees a high value in your brother and sister in Christ when you are struggling to see it, when they are getting under your skin, when they are on your nerves, when they are stepping on your toes, when they don't seem valuable to you at all, God sees value in them. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 20, You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price. Honor, value. God chooses to value you by buying you with a high price. When you weren't worth it, He chose to buy you with a high price. So you must honor God with your body. First Peter 1, 18-24, You know that God paid a ransom to save you from this empty life. And it was not paid with mere gold or silver. Very valuable things. Which lose their value. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. If we're going to get good at honoring one another, we have to realize how valuable we are to the Creator of the universe. And as we learn to realize how valuable we are to the Creator of the universe, we lift our eyes up to our brothers and sisters in Christ, and we choose to assign to them the same value that God assigns to them. We have to realize that they are brothers and sisters created in the image of God. I love the phrase, I've heard many pastors say this before, for this very person, Jesus died. This is honor. When that person is doing something that you don't understand, when that person is getting in the way of your ministry because they want to do something a different way than you would want to do them. 
What if we chose to say for that very person, Jesus died, and if they are worthy of the blood of Jesus, they are worthy of my time and my energy and my resources. Paul's saying if you want to move from commanded love, just doing it because you have to, to genuine affection, then it starts by seeing people as valuable. It starts by going out of your way to assign a high value to them. And that's something that we do with our time and with our energy and with our resources. But it's, it's interesting to me that not only does he just say that we should honor one another, it's framed in, a, it's framed in competitive language. My translation doesn't really um, render it this way, but a lot of translations render it, outdo one another in showing honor. It's like this competitive thing. Like, again, imagine a room full of people who were all trying to beat each other at honoring one another. <laughs> imagine if we're all assigning more value to one another. It's going to breed genuine affection. We're going to learn to love each other as we meet each other and see each other with value. I love that he frames it in competitive language. Do you... Just, Maybe I'm the only one here. Does anybody ever read Paul and feel kind of offended? Like he's speaking to you like you're an idiot? Anybody? Okay. Um, sometimes that happens to me. I'm like, seriously, Paul? Like, and this is, I think, I don't know. I get a little vibe like he's treating us like we're toddlers. Um, or he's like, he's going to convince us to, to value one another by making it competitive. Um, any of you ever tried to use this trick with toddlers when they're cleaning their room? Uh, I've done this before where it's like trying to get a kid to clean up after themselves. They're not doing it. And then you say, I bet I can clean this room faster than you can clean this room. Anybody ever done that before? What happens? Depending on the age, I was talking to Michelle about this this week. There's an age where they start to realize what you're doing. And they're like, I bet you can clean it faster than I can. But there's like the sweet spot where they're like, no way. I'm going to beat you to clean the room. There's something about this competitive nature. It, it, it draws, it draws out some of the strength that we have within us, some of the ability that we have within us that we don't even realize. And so Paul's saying, like, there's one thing to just say, honor each other. He's saying, I bet you can't honor that person more than they honor you. And imagine, like, it seems silly, but imagine if we did that. Imagine if we were a room full of people that were like, I am going to choose to honor you more than you choose to honor me. And we meet each other all at the bottom, serving one another sacrificially. Imagine a room full of people that get competitive about assigning a high value to one another. Or even better, assigning the same value that God assigns to them. Romans 5.8, when we were utterly helpless, Christ came just at the right time to purchase us back. So this means... That when you would describe the person to your left or to your right as utterly helpless. Anybody? No? Am I the only one? Like, when you have these interactions with people in the church and you're like, I just don't, I can't, not today. It's in that moment that we remind ourselves that's how we were before a holy God. Adding no value. Sin separated us. We're in rebellion towards Him. We're going the opposite way that He wants us to go, doing the opposite things that He wants us to do. And it was in that moment when He chose to send His one and only Son to purchase us with a high price, to choose to value us, to assign honor to us. And Paul's saying, man, genuine affection can be, can be 
create it quickly, as quickly as possible, through a group of people choosing to value each other in that way. The type of value that God is inviting us to extend to others is countercultural. It's easy to assign value to people that are above you at work. It's easy to assign value to coworkers that you respect. But God is calling us to show honor to everyone, even when we don't see that they can add value to our lives. How often are we willing to go out of our way to do something for someone because we know it's going to get us something in return? Can I confess some really gross things to you really quickly? All right. Man, I'm a, I'm a golfer. You're going to hear that in my sermons from time to time. I just, I love to golf. Um, golfing is an expensive hobby, uh, especially in public golf courses. A few times I've had godly brothers and sisters in Christ who are successful in business invite me to their private golf club. Man, something happens in my heart where I start to really assign value to that person. I'm like, I am going to go out of my way to make sure this person knows how valuable they are to me. Why is that? It's because I want to get something in return. It's because I want to get a second and a third and a fourth invite, right? And, and what if, I think Paul's saying, what if we chose to demonstrate that type of value to everyone? And it wasn't like, what can I get from them? But it's like, man, what can I do for that person? How can I demonstrate to that person that they are valuable? Not only to a holy God, but to me, their brother and sister in Christ. And what if we had that attitude towards one another? What if we went out of our way to demonstrate to other people that we are valuable? Imagine the relationships that will be formed as we seek not to be served, but to serve. As I was putting this message together, I was reminded of a quote I shared uh, a few months ago in a message on humility. And I think it really hammers this point home. It's by a guy named F.B. Meyer. I don't know who he is, but he sounds like an old dead white guy, and usually they have really good quotes. Um, <laughs> sorry, that's terrible. He says this. He says, I used to think that God's gifts were on shelves, one above another, and the taller we grow, the easier we can reach them. But now I find that God's gifts are on shelves, and the lower we stoop, the more that we get. So if we, if we replace that with this idea of honor, oftentimes what we do is we, we honor people that are going to help us get higher and higher up the ladder. But God's kingdom is different than that. And, and value is actually found at the bottom of the ladder. Think about the disciples of Jesus. Think about how different they were. <laughs> You've got Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector who literally could not be more polar opposite human beings. And we see bickering and fighting in the Gospels. We see them getting in conflict, and we see um, John essentially bragging that he's faster than Peter. We see all these weird things, right? But, but I think over a three-year span of being with Jesus and, and being able to learn from Jesus the way that he values people and honors people, it, it formed this genuine affection. It moved from, like, we love each other because we have to, because we're Jesus' disciples, and if we don't, like, he'll do the Jesus thing where he looks at us really sweetly and nicely, and we know that he's like, oh, my gosh. If you've watched, any of you have watched The Chosen, The Chosen does a really good job of, like, playing this out in real life. But, so I think, essentially, we get 
a bunch of different bickering and these different people all together in a room. And I think through Jesus' example, we see it, it's, it's culmination in the Last Supper when nobody's volunteering to wash the feet. There's got to be a servant somewhere that's going to do that, right? We, we had to have, we've got enough money. Like, Judas has got the pocketbook. Can we pay a slave to clean our feet? And while they're all looking around waiting for somebody to do it, Jesus stoops down and begins to wash their feet. And this is Jesus saying, you're valuable. I'm, I'm choosing to honor you. I'm choosing to stoop down below you, to, 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 to value you more than I value myself. And, and the beautiful thing is we, we see these group of eclectic, diverse disciples who are learning to live together, who are loving each other because they have to at the beginning, I'm sure. But then... Right after the ascension of Jesus, what happens? And they all go up to the upper room together. Because I think what had happened is over those three years, they moved from commanded love to genuine affection. And there was nobody else they would rather be with in the time of their difficulty, in the time of their struggle, in the time of their Lord leaving. There was nobody they'd rather be together with than each other. And I think, man, I, I just believe that maybe that happened because of the example of Jesus' honoring them, that they learned to honor one another slowly but surely over time, that they moved from loving each other because they had to, to genuine brotherly affection. Man, let's be a church full of people that meet each other at the bottom. My prayer is that we cultivate genuine affection for one another, that we choose to value each other above ourselves, that we take time. When we're in a hurry and when we think the thing that we have to do is more important than anything else anybody else has to do, that we stop. We look that person in the eye and we remind ourselves, for this very person, Jesus died. And so they, right now, if they've got something going on, they're more important to me than my errand that I have to run. They're more important to me than the checklist that I have to accomplish. Man, go out of your way to affirm each other with your words. It's so much easier to tear people down with jokes. We, we've built this culture in America where it's fun and easy to be sarcastic and to tear people down. But what if we were a church that went out of our way to affirm people with our words? He said, thank you so much for your sacrifice. Thank you so much for the way that you serve my children, the way that you serve my family, the way that you go out of your way and volunteer. Imagine if we all just went out of our way to affirm each other, to encourage each other. Imagine what God might do if we chose to assign the same value to one another that God values us with. I think we'd move from commanded love because we have to, because Jesus loved us, so we love others, to like genuine affection. And I think, I think people can see the difference. Like, Jesus said that you, they'll know that you're my disciples by your love for one another. So if, if we want to impact this community around us, I think they'll see through that we just love each other because we have to. What if we formed a genuine community that actually loved each other, like genuine affection for one another? That's my prayer. That's my hope for our church. Um, let me pray, and then we're going to transition to a time of communion, which I think hammers this home really well. Father, 
we thank you so much that when we were utterly helpless, you chose to value us. You chose to send your one and only son to pay the only price that would suffice, his sinless, spotless blood. God, may we understand how valuable we are to you. May we get confident in who you call us to be. May we get confident in how much love we get from you. That we're able to freely extend that love to others. That like we're like a, a wellspring filling up, overflowing with love and with value for others because we know how valuable we are to you. God, remind us of our value and give us confidence to value others for your glory and for our good. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.